Welcome to the Investment Matters podcast from Newton Investment Management. This podcast is intended for UK, US, Canadian, Australian and New Zealand institutional investors only. Please note that any investment policies, processes or activities described in this podcast relate to investment strategies managed from the United Kingdom by Newton Investment Management Limited. You can listen to important regulatory disclosures at the end of this podcast. The companies referenced may or may not represent securities purchased or sold for advisory clients. It should not be assumed that an investment in the companies discussed was or will be profitable. The Investment Matters podcast was recorded in line with current government guidelines around social distancing. We apologise for any issues in recording quality. Welcome to Investment Matters, the Newton Investment Management podcast. I'm Matt Goodburn from the Investment Communications team. And today I'm joined by Newton's Emerging Markets Portfolio Manager, Ian Smith, and Newton's Global Strategist, Richard Bullock. Today we'll be focusing on emerging markets, and more specifically, China and India, easily the two biggest growth engine in emerging markets, which have followed markedly different routes, uh, both politically and economically, over recent years. So, Ian... Um, Obviously, you, you've been looking at studying China for some time and obviously at the investment market there, an area that's been an oversized part of, of the, the Chinese economy for, for some time now has been the real estate sector. And we've seen this growing and unfolding crisis or, or particularly a debt crisis really in, in that sector uh, and issues we've seen with, with uh, Evergrande in particular. Um, do you, um, how, how would you describe those problems, first of all, and then separately, are you wary of uh, of a knock-on effect on on wider sections of of the Chinese economy? As you pointed out, um, the real estate industry is oversized in China. Um, estimates are that it contributes about thirty percent of GDP in China. You typically see that at about ten to twenty percent in other countries. And for us, that's a reflection of the growth model that China's been operating with really since it opened up its economy. And you know, we've had a lot of money flow into China, get trapped in China and, and multiply in China. As a result of that, we've seen very high levels of growth capital formation and um, a lot of resources allocated to the real estate industry. Um, so, you know, we're at a crossroads now where the, the, the government obviously would ideally like to see a containment of that industry. They'd obviously like to see um, a consolidation of the industry much uh, more rational players with healthier balance sheets and you know more more focused uh, you know, business activities on on what they're what they're good at and evergrande you know fell foul to you know some of those initiatives where we go from here um you know the, the jury's still out um real estate sales remain very weak in china they have been for three or four months now you know, new home sales have been weak. That's obviously going to be a problem for some developers or many developers because that's a key source of liquidity for them. Uh, and weakness is especially pronounced in, in terms of existing home sales and land sales. That ha- then has a knock-on effect to the finances of local governments who are have typically and historically been, um, you know, key sources of, uh, of, of investment growth in many regions in China. Uh, so, yeah, no, it's a... It's, it's a very large, um, you know, issue. Um, you know, we're watching it closely. Our sense is that the authorities have a lot of tools at their disposal to to contain 
um, you know, problems and contagion that we might see from stresses in the industry, uh, we're seeing signs of them being prepared to deploy some of those. Um, you know, we could see financing channels to real estate companies opening up, we see mortgage rates coming down, we can see some of the restrictions on home buying relaxed. And so we believe that they've they've got what it takes to um, contain the problems. But ultimately, they've got um, two objectives here. One is to transition the economy and the other is to ensure that we, we you know, that the problems in the industry don't get out of hand. And our base case is that they'll probably achieve that. For us, the implications are that you probably don't want to be invested in in these ex-growth industries. And, you know, as, we, as it stands right now, there might be an opportunity to um, pick up um, stocks in other sectors that have been caught in the crossfire, um, uh, but that actually whose long-term outlooks remain very attractive. Okay, th- thanks, Ian. I mean, do you see, obviously, the, we've seen the commodities sort of so-called super cycle. Um, do, you, do you get this sense that, that, that would, there'll be a knock-on effect there, obviously, if the, if the building sector in, in China is, is reined in? Um, do you think there'll be sort of wider implications for, for commodities in particular or raw materials? No, so no doubt this is having an effect on, um, you know, many materials. Uh, you know, iron ore is a very good example where prices have, have come down quite rapidly in recent months. You know, we would be worried for um, companies that are very geared into, um, you know, iron ore and steel and cement, for example. Other materials, it's a slightly more balanced story. While, for example, materials like copper are very much used in the construction industry for Chinese real estate, you know, two things are worth bearing in mind. One is that that copper is typically used at the later stages um, and towards completion of real estate as as opposed to the beginning. Um, so that 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 source of demand might not bite uh, immediately. But secondly, there's there's offsetting sources of demand for copper. Um, obviously, as we see increasing amounts of electrification, so many areas where we're going to need a lot more copper. And where you know there are actually supply constraints, so um, on some materials it's a much more balanced story. Finally, still on this area, really, Ian, um, I think you've talked, and obviously we're aware that there's the three red lines policy uh, designed by the Chinese government to, to limit sort of uh, speculation. Do you think that this sort of we've seen this so-called crackdown on on areas of excess and perhaps uh, you know too much indebtedness? Do you see that playing out in other areas of the Chinese economy? Is as the rebalancing of, of the economy goes on? Absolutely. So, you know, debt levels have grown enormously in China over the last 20 years. Again, that goes back to, um, you know, the growth model that they've been adhering to, where, you know, a lot of money has channeled its way into China through trade surpluses and through the capital account. It's got trapped in China and it's accumulated in, in, a, in a country where we've got a very high savings rate. And this has led to high levels of investment, high levels of debt accumulation. Um, and so those pockets are very worrying areas of, of, of debt imbalance. This is something that the Chinese authorities have been aware of for, for quite some time. Um, and we've seen not just the three red lines, but many initiatives from them to try to delever the economy. Um, one is obviously the asset management rules in the banking system that they need to implement by the end of this year, 2021. They were originally meant to implement them by the end of last year, but they were given an extension on that. So certainly, you know, this is all part and parcel of wanting to see um, a transition of China's economy to address some of the imbalances, whether certain industries that are have ballooned and are contributing excessively to economic growth 
Um, but other areas where they hope to see much higher levels of growth to compensate, you know, as we see growing middle class, more resources in, in households and higher levels of household consumption and various opportunities to grow strategic industries of the future. You know, solar PV supply chains being an obvious example, electric vehicles um, and, and to catch up, um, become more self-sufficient in terms of technology, the semi-supply chain healthcare. So there's many areas where they want to pursue higher levels of growth that presumably they'll, they'll hope will offset some of the pains of, of, um, of slowing um, and con- con- contracting economy in certain parts of, of, of the economy. Thanks, Ian. Um, I'm going to move it on now to, to look at sort of some of the, um, perhaps the, the geopolitical, geopolitical um, issues uh, in the region and perhaps specifically coming to you, Richard, the, the role of uh, or the position of predicament of Taiwan really within that um, we, we know obviously that Taiwan is an important producer of, uh, of silicon wafers it's part of that that's uh, that sector um, and obviously there's a tug of war between US and, and, and China over that what do you see really if we look at the the risks of that and then we can broaden it out to the to the the wider sort of Indo-Pacific area. I really view Taiwan as ground zero for geopolitics. This is where um, great power politics uh, in its raw essence uh, between the world's two great powers of the United States and China is playing out. I think Taiwan is the most valuable piece of strategic uh, real estate there is on the planet because um, it taking control of Taiwan for the People's Republic would really um, open up the Indo-Pacific to its uh, greater geopolitical ambitions, but also for the United States um, protecting and defending um, a a democracy in the Indo-Pacific obviously sends an enormously strong signal to allies like Korea and and Japan and Australia and India. Um, So I think this contestation is going to last a while. I don't think anything imminent is going to happen. But if we just take a step back here, um, you know, there's a very antagonistic process happening because clearly um, there's an outreach from Taiwan for uh, closer engagement with other democracies um, and the desire to be seen and heard on the international stage. And the U.S. is really accommodating that or trying to accommodate that. Conversely, China's never hidden its intentions around Taiwan. Um, It's said that reunification is an historic inevitability. Um, It would prefer to do that peacefully, but it will not rule out the use of force. Um, So I think it's no surprise that we've seen an intensification, um, for example, in in the number of um, China's air force incursions into Taiwanese airspace year to date, uh, which have numbered over 500 already. Um, And so... While we can't rule out an invasion um, by the Chinese leadership, I think it's important to take a step back and remember that, um, you know, China has interests and we feel that uh, Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader, is a rational actor, having uh, spoken uh, with people that, that have that are close to the Chinese leadership. Um, when we think that any move on Taiwan would only be conducted when the odds are um, highly skewed in China's favor. So the probability of anything kinetic happening in the next five years is relatively low. Um, but that said, um, the re- the semiconductor industry is taking um, precautions. The United States government, obviously very concerned about um, the future 
accessibility to semiconductors is trying to ensure that more manufacturing of, of uh, critical semiconductors happens in the lower 48 states of the United States. Um, and um, interestingly, recently, uh, the US government has required all major semiconductor players to respond to a survey um, that's asked them fairly detailed questions about their supply chains. Um, so things are really moving in this area and it's certainly um, the, the hottest area in geopolitics to uh, to watch out for, I think. Thank, thanks, Richard. I, and I've seen I've seen some some uh, observers say that, as you say, nothing it's very unlikely there to be any sort of uh, military conflict in the next three to five years. But potentially that the end game is that Taiwan does become absorbed at some point back into China. I mean, do you think that's that's realistically what will happen? I and mean, you mentioned that when the odds are in China's favour, that may happen. But do you think that is ultimately the end game of what we'll see playing out there? That is certainly the end objective for uh, the Chinese Communist Party and for the leadership. Um, they see it as part of the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. And um, they've never hidden that objective or aspiration. Um, whether it will happen is a different matter because it will depend on the relative strengths of the two great powers uh, and their alliances. Remember, the US is now um, trying to increase its cooperation with other democracies and, and powers in the region. Um, so this is by no means a, st a straightforward um, desire that, that China can fulfill. Uh, but it will depend in 5, 10, 20, 30 years down the line on the relative um, strength of the of the two economies, their military capabilities, um, and the United States' ongoing commitment uh, to the Indo-Pacific region. Thank you. And I suppose we should at this point also mention, uh, you know, what are the mili military ambitions in, in India? You know, you have a, I guess, what most would regard as a, a quite a nationalist government under Modi. How do you see sort of Chinese and uh, Indian relations playing out? Because obviously India is looking to be a bigger player in, in the Asia region. Is that something that you're watching closely as well? Absolutely. So over the last decade, um, perhaps even slightly longer, China has really increased its presence in the Indian Ocean, um, which historically India has viewed as its sphere for obvious re re reasons. It's its backyard. Um, but China has built what it's what has become termed as the string of pearls. This is a um, set of military bases across various islands um, and ports uh, in the Indian Ocean in places like Sri Lanka, Pakistan, uh, the Maldives. And so this has made India feel less secure. Um, and so India is starting to reassert itself and try and push back on um, China's uh, military assertiveness in the region. And it's doing that by responding with economic assistance to uh, countries in the region, uh, trying to invest in port infrastructure itself. Clearly, it's doing uh, more uh, military um, maneuvers and, and partnerships with, with other countries like Australia and the United States. Um, but the, one of the one of the big um, events for India-China relations happened last year on the Himalayas, where the two countries came into direct conflict, and this led to uh, a number of fatalities on both sides. And really, this has um, led to quite a 
change in the relationship between the two countries. I think it could be described as um, you know, a scar that's been left in the relationship. They managed to de-escalate the immediate conflict, but it certainly led to um, you know, scars in the uh, trade, investment, and, and commercial relationship between the two the two Asian countries. Um, examples include India, um, you know, banning Chinese apps um, in, in its market, um, discriminating or pushing out Chinese handset manufacturers that have lost market share in India. Um, so it's it's led to more protectionism against China by India. Um, and so I think. Um, the, the, the trend is, is pointed in this direction that these two countries uh, with 1.3 billion people each are going to see each other um, in in increasingly um, uh, conflicting uh, terms going forwards. Okay, well, we've talked about, um, looked at some of the geopolitics in the region. Um, let's take it more to the, the macro level again and bring it back to, to China, Richard, and the common prosperity policies that uh, that, that have been sort of announced over, over the last few months and years. So we've seen some uncertainty there for investors since the summer. Um, for those that are invested, investing in China, how, how should they navigate that situation? Yeah, this is a really fundamental question for investors in China, because what we saw over the summer with the common prosperity measures, this intensification of new policies that came out um, has really um, changed the investment landscape uh, for the time being. Um, and so I think there's a number of things that investors need, need to consider. Um, you know, firstly, I would say that this, this is about the Chinese Communist Party wanting to address inequality uh, and stop corporate abuses. It's not about the Chinese leadership um, wanting to institute a, a deep welfare state uh, and about massive redistribution from the rich to the poor. Um, the Chinese government has said that common prosperity um, should be measured in decades in terms of the deadlines. It talked about um, being partway towards common prosperity by 2035 and um, hitting the, the objectives by 2050. Um, so this is something that we're going to see play out over many, many years. And so in investors need to remain vigilant for new policy announcements and make sure their portfolio holdings are aligned in a pro-policy manner with the Chinese government. Um, but it's also important to emphasize that there's some clear sector winners from common prosperity. Um, and th these might include consumer staples companies as more people uh, in China are brought into the uh, middle class um, to be able to consume some of these staples. Um, you know, better healthcare provision. The Chinese government will want to use the private sector to, to supply more healthcare. Um, so I think healthcare is an exciting area. Um, clearly, with climate change and wanting to make sure that um, that the climate and pollution is is improved in China, renewable energy, electric vehicles, and industrial technology are all areas that um, investors should look to play over the long term. Probably quite a, an, an interesting long term story there, a mid to long term story. In the in the near term, um, we've seen a, a fairly dramatic slowdown uh, in, in Q4 for China. Um, are you expecting to see a, a government sort of uh, responding with stimulus there? So China's economy has been sequentially slowing all year in 2021. Um, the latest GDP print in Q3 was 4.9% year on year, which was down from uh, significantly from the start of the year uh, when they printed almost 20%. But I think the big macro 
um, takeaway for this year is that the Chinese government set a fairly low objective of 6% GDP growth. It knew from the beginning that um, it would be able to beat that target. And so this has given um, the government uh, some, some cover to be able to pursue these policy objectives, um, as we talked about with common prosperity. So heading into 2022, that the macro picture is looking quite different. Um, that, you know, there's evidence to suggest with a lot of the headwinds that, that China's economy is facing right now with the supply chains and um, energy shortages, um, you know, the, the COVID re resurgence and the, the lockdowns that, that are going on as they pursue COVID zero, that um, the economy is slowing um, quite significantly. So I think um, the government is mindful of this. I think the government will um, want to avoid GDP growth, um, you know, going to very, very low levels. But it's also important to, to consider um, their longer term objectives of dealing with, with leverage and reducing um, leverage in the economy um, so that they can avoid future financial risks as well. So I think the, the most likely way that the government will steer policy in, in 2022 is to continue to focus on industries that it really sees as key and it will um, it will adopt industry by industry policies for example um, allocation of credit um, uh, more more flexibility for these industries uh, and industries that it sees as being excessive over leveraged it will continue um, to, to restrict these industries um, so I, I think um, it's, it's a balancing act, and if the economy goes uh, too weak, um, they'll, they'll have to consider whether to, um, whether to stimulate, but I think there's still a way away from that uh, at this point in time. Okay, thanks, Richard. Um, I'll move it back to India now, um, and over to you again, Ian. I mean, we've seen, we've been talking about it to an extent, this phenomenal growth in income per capita in China over the last uh, two to three decades. Um, but we've seen it's it's something like six times larger than the, the per capita growth we've seen in India. Um, do you see reasons or can you see a way in which India could start to emulate that, uh, that huge growth trajectory of China's in, in the years ahead? Absolutely, Matt. Um, we believe that that to be the case. Um, so no, if you look at India, it's got all the ingredients um, you'd like to see for attractive long-term growth. So you know, as, as you alluded to, the base is low, income per capita is very low, around $2,000, very low credit penetration. Household debt to GDP, for example, is a little over 10%. They've got a competitive currency. The PPP conversion factor is about 0.3. So for every dollar you take in the US and you take take to India, you get over three times bang for your buck. And, you know, very supportive demographic trends looking forward in India. Um, that's not the case for most of the rest of the world. And just to put it into context, if you look back to about 300 years, you know, China and India were the, the dominant economies in the world. You know, India was roughly a quarter of global GDP. That trafted about 1% of GDP on a nominal basis and, or 3% on a PPP adjusted basis. That, that's now been rising. They're, they're now at about 3% of global GDP on a nominal basis, but they've got a long way to catch up. Um, you know, and the question is why, why has India sort of languished, um, you know, the growth rates of, of China for so long. And, you know, there's been a lot of academic research on that. But certainly when you look at India now, it, it seems to have all the types of footprint that China did have on the, in the 1990s. But we believe that the key thing that's held them back relative to China is um, 
it's just been a very difficult place to do business. Um, and the cost of capital has been a lot higher. And these are these are areas um, where we're seeing very positive change. And for us, we believe, you know, that's going to uh, more likely unleash India's growth potential. And, and that's what's exciting for India in the years ahead. Are there particular, um, obviously, we know there's been a, a lot of sort of uh, political and and uh, monetary related change. Are there particular sort of changes in legislation that you think have been potential game changes for for business opening up in India? Things you you would point to that you think are quite exciting to create future growth? Yeah, I mean, there's been so many things happening. Um, you know, some of which happened by the Congress with the con- under the Congress government before the BJP came in. For example, the Adhar um, UID scheme, which gave everyone a 12 digit unique UID, um, a biometric UID that, that that then forms a foundation by which um, you can you can do all sorts of other things, particularly around financial inclusion. Um, but then under the BJP, it's been fairly relentless. Um, and yeah, lots of things that have just encouraged the formalization of the economy. Um, and it, it's been quite carrot and stick, you know, the goods and services tax that unifies the country and um, eradicate some of the inefficiencies that you get through intra intra India trade, um, but also gives much better tax oversight for the government. Um, but lots of other areas, you know, the, the bankruptcy code, the Real Estate Act, um, you know, even demonetization um, that was very painful. These things, um, you know, weren't necessarily easy to implement, but enhance formalization and give economic actors much better visibility when doing business and what the future looks like. Um, and a lot of sort of incentives, the PLI uh, schemes that, that you know, provide tax incentives for businesses to, to manufacture in India. Um, and, you know, th- hence we're seeing very high and resilient levels of FDI in, in India. And it's highly likely that in the years ahead, um, India is going to be a really important manufacturing base for all sorts of supply chains. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot going on, um, and the end result of this is that uh, it's much easier to do business in India. Um, so when Modi came into power, uh, India stood at 142nd position in the ease of doing business index. Five years later, it was in 63rd position, and they've got aspirations to be in the the top 25. And and just given the the, the, the ingredients for growth that I talked about, when you combine it with it being easier to do business, that's very powerful. Um, but it's not just the government that's that's doing a lot of the heavy lifting. The, the private sector has done huge amounts. And especially when you look at the telecommunications industry and what Reliance Geo has done, India you know, is one of the, I, I think, if not the largest consumer per capita of data um, globally, um, mobile data. And, um, you know, that's because of, you know, the build out and, you know that the 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 access to cheap um, uh, data services that are available in India now, which again leverages all sorts of other opportunities, and hence why, for example, the UPI uh, payments gateway um, has been such a resounding success. So it's really a combination between some of the things that the government are doing, some of which was quite painful to implement, and and some of the things that the private sector are doing that has just resulted in. Um, a much better backdrop for businesses to operate in India. Thanks, Ian. I mean, I'll just come over once again to you, Richard, on that. I mean, obviously, Ian paints quite an optimistic picture of uh, future potential growth in the country for, for various reasons. Um, I think you, you're on record as saying that you think 
obviously why we expect strong growth overall you think it's unlikely to attain anything like quite the rate that it, that china obviously has enjoyed over the last two decades and um, can you just go through some of the reasons you know the difference between the two the two countries really that makes you think that it wouldn't quite ever attain those heights albeit with strong growth still yeah i mean i'm an optimist on india i should um point that out first and foremost but i think what china achieved for three decades of growing at double digit gdp growth um is really exceptional in the history of mankind um lifting that many people out of poverty in such a short space of time um and china had some very unique um aspects and features that that help contribute to such sustained and high level growth um and and i think primarily um you could attribute it to being able to um uh, push capital formation in such an enormous way by um having such large savings rates and having a a government um that was autocratic um uh, and not having to answer to um dem- democratic forces enabled um this big infrastructure build out enabled um the urbanization to happen um and really it was a quite a fortuitous time that china came on the international stage just as globalization was um opening up after the end of the cold war in the early 1990s um where multinational companies were looking to grow supply chains um across the world so uh, the the list of ingredients was very fortuitous for china and i think we're in the era now where it's going to be a little bit more difficult for india to um be able to um uh, to to have some of those features that that china had obviously the political systems different to, um the indian government's um you know democratic the indian political systems democratic the government has to um listen to um to to voices of the people for example in in um aspects such as land acquisition um and you know construction um, so it's not going to be all plain sailing um the modi government does have um the bjp party has a majority in the lower house but not the upper house there's still a lot of vested interests in um in certain industries which means that getting um reforms pushed through in their entirety is not not easy so i just see that the gdp growth rate being more like 6 to 7% uh in real terms every year once um you know once we're out of the pandemic and and india's fully firing um which is you know still going to be um world beating for 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 the decades to come but perhaps not as good as as china's was between you know the 1980s and uh, 2010 so although india's unlikely to attain the heady levels of double digit growth that china attained for three three consecutive decades 6 to 7% will still be a very attractive growth rate and i think it's important to um also appreciate that in the history of economic development um gdp growth rate has not always tended to correlate strongly with stock market performance um this was the case at certain points for china where the economy was growing very strongly um yet their um stock market didn't perform particularly well uh because it created imbalances um in, in certain industries so i think it could well be the case that india's stock market um may may find that the sweet spot of performance could be around 6 to 7% gdp growth um w- without the economy overheating um the uh, the corporate sector and and the stock market can do very well 
thanks, Richard. Ian, do you want to uh, add anything else to that point? Yeah, no, I, I, I think I'd agree with Richard's uh, comments and his observations. Um, I, I think certainly the way forward for India, um, you know, is very exciting. We're going we're gonna to see good levels of growth, certainly by international standards and for, for, for a large economy. Um, but it's going to be much more haphazard um, than we've seen for China over the last 30 years. But clearly, there, you know, I, I think this is a reflection on the differences in, in you know, the, the, the approach to uh, growth and the policies used. Um, uh, China certainly adhered to a mercantilist um, approach um, that, that attracted huge amounts of capital into the country um, and allowed for very high levels of investment. Um, and it's unlikely that India will follow that same route. Um, and for that reason, I, I think it's highly likely that the growth rates will be will be lower, um, but there'll probably be less imbalances and headaches um, at the back end of it that might result. Um, and, you know, which are some of the things that China is dealing with right now. OK, thank, well, thanks very much, Ian. Um, we'll, we'll leave it there for today. So I'd just like to thank our guests, Ian Smith and uh, Richard Bullock, and we will catch up with you all again very soon. Please note the following important information. Your capital may be at risk. The value of investments and the income from them can fall as well as rise and investors may not get back the original amount invested. This podcast is a financial promotion. Material in this podcast is for general information only. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Newton Investment Management Limited and should not be construed as investment advice or recommendations for any purchase or sale of any specific security or commodity. Any reference to a specific country or sector should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell in this country or sector. Compared to more established economies, the value of investments in emerging markets may be subject to greater volatility due to differences in generally accepted accounting principles or from economic or political instability or less developed market practices. Where a portfolio has exposure to hedge funds, gold, private equity and property via publicly quoted transferable securities, there are additional risks associated with these sectors. This podcast is issued by Newton Investment Management Limited. The Bank of New York Mellon Centre, 160 Queen Victoria Street, London, EC4V4LA, registered in England, number 01371973. Newton Investment Management Limited is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, 12 Endeavour Square, London, E21JN, and is a subsidiary of the Bank of New York Mellon Corporation. The Newton Investment Management Group is used to collectively describe a group of affiliated companies that provide investment advisory services under the brand name Newton or Newton Investment Management. Investment advisory services are provided in the United Kingdom by Newton Investment Management Limited and in the United States by Newton Investment Management North America LLC. Both firms are indirect subsidiaries of the Bank of New York Mellon Corporation. BNY Mellon. Newton Investment Management Limited is registered with the SEC as an investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. Newton Investment Management Limited's investment business is described in form ADV Part 1 and 2 
which can be obtained from the sec.gov website or obtained upon request. Personnel of certain of our BNY Mellon affiliates may act as 1. Registered representatives of BNY Mellon Securities Corporation in its capacity as a registered broker-dealer to offer securities. 2. Officers of the Bank of New York Mellon, a New York chartered bank, to offer bank-maintained collective investment funds. And 3. Associated persons of BNY Mellon Securities Corporation in its capacity as a registered investment advisor to offer separately managed accounts managed by BNY Mellon investment management firms, including Newton. Certain information contained herein is based on outside sources believed to be reliable, but their accuracy is not guaranteed. Unless you are notified to the contrary, the products and services mentioned are not insured by the FDIC or by any governmental entity and are not guaranteed by or obligations of the Bank of New York or any of its affiliates. The Bank of New York assumes no responsibility for the accuracy or completeness of the above data and disclaims all expressed or implied warranties in connection therewith. Copyright 2020, The Bank of New York Company, Inc. All rights reserved. In Canada, Newton Investment Management Limited is availing itself of the international advisor exemption in the following provinces. Alberta, British Columbia, Ontario and Quebec and the Foreign Commodity Trading Advisor Exemption in Ontario. The International Advisor Exemption is in compliance with National Instrument 31-103, Registration Requirements, Exemptions and Ongoing Registrant Obligations. In Australia and New Zealand, this podcast is for Australian wholesale clients and New Zealand wholesale investors only, and is not intended for distribution to, nor should it be relied upon by, retail clients. This information has not been prepared to take into account the investment objectives, financial objectives or particular needs of any particular person. Before making an investment decision, you should carefully consider, with or without the assistance of a financial advisor, whether such an investment strategy is appropriate in light of your particular investment needs, objectives and financial circumstances. Newton Investment Management Limited is exempt from the requirement to hold an Australian financial services licence in respect of the financial services it provides to wholesale clients in Australia and is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority of the UK under UK laws, which differ from Australian laws. Newton Investment Management Limited is authorised and regulated in the UK by the Financial Conduct Authority, 12 Endeavour Square, London, E21JN. Newton is providing financial services to wholesale clients in Australia in reliance on ACIC Corporation's Repeal and Transitional Instrument 2016 forward slash 396, a copy of which is on the website of the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, www.asic.gov.au. The instrument exempts entities that are authorised and regulated in the UK by the Financial Conduct Authority, such as Newton, from the need to hold an Australian financial services licence under the Corporations Act 2001 for certain financial services provided to Australian wholesale clients on certain conditions. Financial services provided by Newton are regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority under laws and regulatory requirements 
of the United Kingdom, which are different to the laws applying in Australia. Newton is providing financial services to wholesale investors in New Zealand in reliance on the safe harbour regime under the Financial Markets Conduct Act 2013, Schedule 1, Part 3.